Welcome to As a Woman, Fertility Hormones and Beyond. I'm your host, Dr. Natalie Crawford, and I am a board-certified OBGYN and fertility physician and also co-founder of Fora Fertility in Austin, Texas. Each week on this podcast, I discuss health and fertility and how they relate to your true self. Become a part of the community of collaboration that amplifies others as a woman. I hope you enjoy the episode. Hello, and welcome back to the As a Woman podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Natalie Crawford, and we are in our series, Answering Your Fertility Questions. I'm a board-certified REI and OBGYN, which means I did my OBGYN residency and then extra training in infertility. Had to sit for oral and written boards, have to do yearly certification. I'm an expert on all things fertility and hormones, and I am answering your questions because it is one of my core beliefs that you deserve to know how your body works and to advocate for yourself in today's world We have to base it all on education. I'm so honored for all of your support of this podcast. This is the last episode of 2023, which marks five years of this podcast. It has grown and developed and found so much love and support and had millions and millions of downloads and shares. And I'm honored that you choose to spend your time with me. So thank you so, so much. Follow along on Instagram at NatalieCrawfordMD. We will be planning out our next year of content, but I've been so happy to dive into these Q&As and we're going to keep a few more of them coming and spatter them throughout the year and we'll start off January this way as well. That means if you have your own questions, you should call and leave a voicemail. You can call 657-229-3672. Again, 657-229-3672. That is the As A Woman voicemail. You can leave your question. You do not have to leave your name, but you can ask what you want to know. And I just think this is such a great way to learn both further your own understanding and also help other people because very often we don't know the questions until they're asked. Feel free to follow along on Instagram at Natalie Crawford MD. Every Monday, there's still a Q&A box and those questions are used for so many different things. Questions in the newsletter, questions on regular podcast episodes answered right there on Instagram, used for reels and story posts and all kinds of things. So ask away and check out the website at nataliecrawfordmd.com. You can sign up for the newsletter, search the resources page, or even treat yourself to even more education by buying one of our courses and going through a very systematic approach to learning about your body. With all of that said, I'm so thankful for all of you. We are going to go ahead and dive into this episode, which is all about frozen embryo transfers. To recap, embryo transfers are a part of the IVF process. Fresh transfers happen in the same cycle as the egg retrieval or the IVF. And this episode is very specifically talking about a frozen embryo transfer. So your embryos are being frozen and they are going to be put back at a later time. And we're going to dive into testing and protocols and answer your questions. Hi, Dr. Crawford. Thank you so much for your podcast. It has been a wealth of knowledge as I've been going through my first IVF cycle. So my question is, our frozen embryo transfer um, is scheduled at the end of this year, and um, we are going to be out of the state on vacation um, just a few days after, and it's going to fall in that window of our 
um, HCG pregnancy blood work testing. So my question is, do you have any recommendations on still being able to test while you are out of state? And not only that, but if we go back that second day to see if our numbers are rising, that will actually fall on New Year's Day. So most clinics and labs are closed on New Year's Day. So I'm just wondering what our options are as far as being um, on vacation <laughs> during our two-week wait window. Thank you so much for your podcast. Bye-bye. And now a word from one of our sponsors, Apostrophe. With the temperatures starting to warm up, I'm so excited that summer is around the corner and getting ready and looking forward to the summer months. But I know that when I'm outside, enjoying nature, I need to pick up supplies to prepare myself for summer adventures. And if you want to get your skin glowing in time for summer, it's time for you to get started with Apostrophe, who is sponsoring this episode. Apostrophe's goal is to help you feel confident in your own skin. So whether you're dealing with breakouts, signs of aging, or acne scarring, Apostrophe will help you love the skin you're in. I personally love that you get access to an expert dermatology team, a tailored treatment plan. It's simple to sign up for your first visit, and there is no in-person appointment or trip to the pharmacy needed. We have a special deal for our audience. Get your first visit for only $5 at apostrophe.com slash A-A-W when you use our code A-A-W. That's a savings of $15. This code is only available to our listeners. To get started, just go to apostrophe.com slash A-A-W and click get started. Then use the code A-A-W at sign up and you'll get your first visit for only $5. Thank you, Apostrophe, for sponsoring this episode. And now a word from one of our sponsors, Ritual. Did you know that women were excluded from clinical research policy by federal law until 1993? But women belong in scientific research. They're essential and Ritual knows this. I choose Ritual Multivitamin every day because it is easy to take and I know that I am getting high quality and traceable ingredients in a clean and bioavailable forms. In fact, Ritual conducted a university-led human clinical trial for their Essential for Women 18 Plus multivitamin to assess its efficacy and the results showed increase in vitamin D levels by 43% and omega-3 DHA levels by 41% in just 12 weeks. No my shady business. Ritual's Essential for Women 18 Plus is a multivitamin that you can actually trust. Get 25% off your first month at ritual.com slash A-A-W. Start Ritual or add Essential for Women 18 Plus to your subscription today. That's ritual.com slash A-A-W for 25% off. Thank you, Ritual. Sending you all the luck with your transfer. And I'm sure you've reviewed this with your clinic, but it's a great question. The important thing to understand is that clinics have different protocols for checking HCG based on their expected values so they can counsel you the best. Let's consider the day that you have the embryo transfer, we're going to start counting based on whatever day the embryo is. So if you have your embryo transfer, we'll simplify it. On January 5th and your embryo is a day five embryo, that's considered five days. You're really two weeks and five days pregnant at that moment because Remember how dating goes? If we think about dating, pregnancies, back before IVF, before ultrasound, before we really understood how conception occurred, all we had to go on is the last physical sign that you weren't pregnant, which was your period. 
So period dating goes back to whenever the LMP, the last menstrual period, and that counts as day one of the pregnancy. Although now we know you're not even ovulating until you're two weeks pregnant and an embryo is not even implanting until you're two weeks and five days pregnant. And by the time you get a positive pregnancy test, you're four weeks pregnant. Of course, things are still just a ball of cells at that time. And this leads into a whole separate topic about why timing of pregnancy is so tough and so many people don't understand they're pregnant by six weeks, for example. But the time that we're doing a blood test for embryo transfers is typically at what would be your missed period or four weeks pregnant. So if your transfer is on day five, you're going to typically draw a blood test about nine-ish days later. And then whatever day you're going to draw it, you're going to want to repeat it a couple days after that to see if it has appropriate growth. The reality is some clinics do eight days, some do 10 days, some do 12 days. We tend to do 10 most of the time. It just really depends on the day of the week. Meaning if labs are closed on New Year's, I'm not going to draw the first one two days ahead of time. So you can either just shift and say you're going to draw yours on the 31st and the 2nd or shift it back the other way so that the first one happens on the 29th and the second one happens on the 31st. The reality is that even if you draw it earlier, which is typically what I would do, I just counsel somebody very well. Do not check and compare your HCG to other people out there because you'll see these norms about what you're expecting and they'll give you a certain day range and base number off of that. So for example, if your HCG is 100 after a blastocyst transfer on day nine, then you have a higher rate of a live birth than if it's less than that. The higher, the better when it comes to predictive outcome. So if your clinic's shifting your days and you're coming in on day eight for your first one or day seven, and it's less, and this is day post-transfer, and it's less than that, that doesn't mean it's terrible. And even if it's less than that on day nine or day 10, it also does not mean that this is doomed or it's going to be a bad outcome. Because we all have patients who have lower HCGs that as long as they are rising appropriately, the appropriate rise is a doubling of your HCG every 48 hours in that initial week. Please, we don't need to be checking HCGs after that. And once we see a pregnancy on an ultrasound, HCG is not helpful. But if we see a rise in HCG and it's appropriate, fine. It doesn't really matter what we started with. And some of my lowest HCGs that have turned into babies, I've had an 11, I've had a 7. So you're not out of the game. If it's positive, it's positive. And that's why we hate home pregnancy tests because they have a HCG cutoff. Some of them are around 20 to 25. Somebody will take one, say it's negative, stop their meds, and then their blood test might be positive. And then if they lose the pregnancy, we don't know if that one could have been fine. So a urine test is not my answer here. It is not sensitive enough. Make sure your clinic knows. You can go to usually a LabCorp or a CPL out of state. You're just not going to get or you're much less likely to get the results the same day. But you might be shifting the days, especially if one of those is a holiday. And that's very normal. It just changes what you might be expecting. But especially for that first HCG, Positive is positive. That's all we're checking. From there, you want to repeat it in two days and see how it rises. Hi, Natalie. Thank you so much for putting out all the information that you do and for your podcast. I do have a quick question for you. I just got my calendar for my frozen embryo transfer, and my expected transfer date is 
the day before flying out to leave on vacation. So I just want to make sure, is it okay to fly? Is it okay to fly same day? I've been looking at flying out that day. And just want to hear your thoughts on travel and movement and all of that after transfer. Thanks. Bye. Well, you know it's the holiday season if we are talking about IVF and embryo transfers and travel. I will very, very selfishly say one thing about COVID that simplified my life was that nobody was traveling and it made it so much easier to plan calendars. But I'm such a big fan of living your life throughout the infertility process. I want you to be able to travel and I think the embryo transfer time period is so much safer and easier than when you're in your IVF cycle. So I'm glad for all of that. Disclosing all of this information to your clinic is the number one thing. I actually don't mind when somebody travels right after a transfer. Now, understanding if your team is going to give you Valium or not, so are you going to be sedated? Most of the time, people are not given Valium, but everybody's different. If you are, then you might not want to travel under that influence, or maybe you do, but you just want to have a buddy with you. And ultimately, just whenever you're in fertility treatments, the biggest issue about travel, number one, your estrogen tends to be higher or you might have an increased risk of blood clots. So think about travel safety, compression stockings, getting up and walking around, not just sitting in the same place. Consider, depending on if it's a super long flight, talking to your team about if a baby aspirin makes sense or not in your case. I don't love my patients after transfer to go somewhere remote. Just because if something happened, I would hate for you not to be able to get home or get medical care. This is generally more important after that pregnancy test is and on, especially when we don't know that it's a pregnancy in the uterus, but we know you're pregnant. So there's this fine time period that I get very nervous, but also just make sure you take all of your medications and you think through the timing of them. Your clinic can even write you a letter so that you can show it through airport security. Never check your medications. Always, always, always carry them on. And do not think or presume that your clinic can just call you in medications wherever you're going. A lot of the IVF and FET medications are from specialty pharmacies, and a lot of pharmacies don't keep these in stock. So make sure you take what you need and take extra in case your plane gets delayed or you don't make it home. Dr. Crawford, hi. This is uh, Micah from Michigan. Sorry if uh, my, my speech is a little delayed. I've been drinking beers, watching the the Lions play, but at any rate, I listened to your episode on hysteroscopies, and uh, it was it was nice, it was in, informational. And my question is, how soon after that procedure should the embryo be implanted? My wife is going in for one next week, for, I think a polyp removal, and the they're starting on her on meds for the embryo transfer in the same week. So I don't know if those things can happen like simultaneously. Or what? So uh, it'd be wonderful to know this. Appreciate you and what you do. Thank you. Bye. Hello, Micah, and thank you for calling. I'm a Cowboys girl myself, but I won't hold it against you that you are a Lions fan. So let's dive into this because this is such a good question. And I just got to admit, I love seeing my partners get so involved and ask these really great questions. It really warms my heart because this is a team sport, baby. Okay, hysteroscopy is when we put a camera inside the uterus and we take out or we fix or we look. We can do a lot of different things. Remember that hysteroscopy can be both diagnostic, so it can give us a diagnosis, and therapeutic. It can treat whatever we see. 
There are definitely circumstances where I will do a hysteroscopy, confirm that the inside of the uterus looks fantastic or make subtle improvements, and then proceed with a transfer starting immediately. So this can be what we consider just a diagnostic hysteroscopy, just a last minute glimpse. Sometimes you can do what is affectionately known as an endometrial scratch or a tickle. It's really where by the presence of being inside that endometrial cavity or touching the wall, you stimulate some good growth factors and positive inflammatory markers for implantation. And it hasn't been 100% associated with any pregnancy improvement. But as we start working down the line, it's something we sometimes do. Taking out a polyp or resecting very small minor scar tissue. These are circumstances where I will look, treat if there's anything to treat, and get the show on the road. There's no benefit to waiting, no need to do a repeat imaging or healing per se from the procedure. So it sounds like in your wife's case where she has a polyp, that all sounds perfect. Do the hysteroscopy, take out the polyp, and get the show on the road for the transfer. Cases where there's extensive uterine surgery, and sometimes you do not know until you get in there. But most of this time, this is when you might have uterine fibroids that are really deep. You might have a ton of uterine polyps or you're worried about them. It might look like hyperplasia, scar tissue, or a uterine septum that's significant. These are circumstances where you might treat, but then want the uterus to heal and re-image before you feel comfortable doing a transfer. I always think it's really important to understand what the post-op plan is or what the plan is in the most probable circumstance. Because sometimes we have a plan and I see something and then the plan changes based on what we found and that's appropriate. But I always try to line up what I'm expecting. I think we're gonna find a polyp. I will take out the polyp, I'll take pictures. But if everything goes as expected, we will then be following the calendar and getting things started for our embryo transfer and will not need any further interventions or evaluations. So hopefully in your partner's case, everything is good to go and sending you lots of sticky thoughts with your transfer. And now a word from one of our sponsors, Quince. The weather's getting warmer, so it's time to say goodbye to jackets and sweaters and hello to shorts and tees. I wanted to update my wardrobe for the long haul without spending a fortune. And luckily I found Quince. Now I've got a lineup of timeless pieces that keep me looking effortlessly chic year after year. The best part is that Quince items are priced 50 to 80% less than similar brands, but Quince partners directly with top factories, cutting out the cost of the middleman, passing the saving to us, and only working with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing practices. I personally cannot wait to wear my cute tan linen set this summer. So it's your turn to get warm weather ready with Quince. Go to quince.com slash A-A-W for free shipping on your order and 365 day returns. That's Q-U-I-N-C-E dot com slash A-A-W to get free shipping and 365 day returns. Quince.com slash A-A-W. Thank you, Quince. Hi, Dr. Crawford. Um, I've been on uh, progesterone and oil shots for a couple weeks now, and I'm experiencing a lot of pain and a lot of um, what feels like inflammation, you know, it's balled up muscles, um, kind of hot to the touch. It doesn't seem infected or anything, just it's really sore. Um, and I know um, 
kind of systemic inflammation has been shown to have um, negative neurodevelopmental outcomes in children. So I was just wondering whether there's been any research or any um, recommendations about kind of inflammatory states from intramuscular injections of progesterone and oil. Yeah, thank you for doing the show. I really enjoy it. This is such a good question, and it just goes to show us the amazement of progesterone. Let's remember why we even take progesterone and oil. Progesterone and oil is the oil is the substrate where the progesterone is in a normal ovulatory cycle, then the corpus luteum from the ovary is making progesterone. And this progesterone is being made in pulses, so at varying amounts until you get pregnant, and then it starts increasing in exponential fashion once that stimulus switches over from LH pulses from the brain to a constant and increasing stimulus from HCG. Progesterone in embryo transfer cycles can be given different ways. Progesterone supplementation in IVF originated in the world of a fresh embryo transfer. And in that world, the body is making some progesterone from the corpus luteum and you're just supplementing it. The whole idea to even supplement it was the idea that we just poked a needle in the corpus luteum and maybe they won't make enough or function as well. So let's help them out and we'll give some bonus progesterone. As times have shifted and we know more, we still do progesterone supplementation, which is typically vaginal, even in cycles where you still have a corpus luteum or you make it on your own, whether it's a fresh transfer from IVF or it's a natural or a modified natural transfer. But very clear data has shown us that if we're doing an embryo transfer, a frozen embryo transfer, and we're doing what we consider a controlled or medicated cycle, and this is a cycle where the body is not making any hormones, the ovaries are quiet, suppressed, we are replacing all the hormones, giving you estrogen, and then giving you progesterone. There are reasons to do this protocol. There's this idea that because it's not natural, it's not good, or your fertility clinic just wants to do it for X, Y, or Z. It is definitely the protocol of choice in certain patient populations. In my mind, unexplained infertility, endometriosis, secondary infertility, if there's a concern for adenomyosis, if there's any autoimmune conditions, if you're older or you have ovulatory dysfunction. So that's a lot of people. But when we do that, progesterone supplementation, vaginal or oral, like pills, is not enough to get progesterone levels to where they need to be, or at least to work on the uterus in the same way. And we know that because live birth rates are lower. You need progesterone and oil, whether it is daily or every other day or every three days with some vaginal in addition. You need some. It needs to be a part of the protocol. We've gotten away from the idea that you should just be using vaginal progesterone with a medicated cycle. That's old news. So hopefully, since we're even talking about PIO, everybody's on the same page. Now, interestingly, progesterone is one of the world's natural anti-inflammatory agents. And so when we go into progesterone low, like when you have your period, you're more inflammation high. But when you have progesterone around, it actually is an anti-inflammatory agent itself. So even though you're having some local reaction, I'm not worried about the systemic inflammatory response from that. And we think that that progesterone pathway is important and why the body even allows this embryo to implant and doesn't just immune system reject it because progesterone's importance 
in immune tolerance or the immune response and in inflammation. So long-winded to say, progesterone injections are not fun. It's a thick oil. I have had some patients who change the substrate or the type of oil and they tolerate it better. You can also really make sure you're using either a foam roller or a Theragun. You're massaging the area out. We don't want you taking anti-inflammatory agents like Motrin NSAIDs. Those are contraindicated in pregnancy. So after a transfer, those are a no-go. So local mechanisms, switch it around. A lot of people ask about the thigh, but I actually find that that is even more uncomfortable. Know that it's short-lived. If you're getting further along and you're miserable, you could talk to your clinic about switching it up and maybe doing the progesterone every other or every third day and doing vaginal as well. That's not my favorite. If you can tough it out, that's what I'll prefer. And I don't mean tough it out like you're tough, but if we can tolerate it, I just hate making changes or adding extra variables for us to question later if things don't go as planned. But at the end of the day, people do have allergic or very bad responses at times. And if we have to switch it up, we need to know. Whatever you do, just do not not take the progesterone. Progesterone is essential for implantation and embryo transfer cycles. And if you just stop taking it because you get fed up, then it's going to cause an outcome that is not good at all. So we don't want to lose this pregnancy. And if it's really becoming problematic, please, please, please talk to your clinic. Hi, thank you so much for your podcast. I learned so much. It's helped me a lot through IVF. Uh, One of my questions is um, I have endometriosis and I was told that after my egg retrieval, I would need to be on Lupron for two months. Um, can you talk a little bit more on Lupron medication, side effects, how it works, and what, what are the benefits to being on it before the transfer? And I think that's all my questions. Thank you so much. Lupron gets such a bad reputation, and I get it. I get it. Let's break it down. It's so confusing and failure. I'm going to take failure of the collective medical system for just not explaining this well enough. Lupron is what we call a GnRH agonist. It works in the brain. GnRH is released from the hypothalamus, which stimulates the pituitary gland to send out LH and FSH. Now, LH and FSH are responsible for ovulation. Lupron can be used in IVF cycles and protocols to either get a huge response of FSH and LH. I like to think about it as a dumping of whatever is stored up in the pituitary gland. It can be used like that for a trigger or for a flare with stimulation. But when we talk about endometriosis, we're using Lupron as a down regulant or a suppressant, meaning when you constantly take it after the pituitary gland has released what it has, then there's nothing left and your FSH and your LH are low and therefore nothing is being stimulated. Okay, but if let's just dive really hard into endo and Lupron, how this all blends together. Because a lot of people get this idea that the only benefit of the Lupron is the lack of ovulation or missing or messing up your protocol or getting off calendar or breaking through. And that's an added benefit, but that's not the only one. So when we look at Lupron usage, it can be used for a medical treatment of endometriosis and it can be used as a suppressant in cycles and it can be used in long therapy leading up to embryo transfer. 
Yes, GnRH agonist Lupron does stop you from ovulating. Great. If you don't ovulate, then there's not estrogen being made from the ovary to, to stimulate any endolesions that are sensitive to estrogen. But more than that, GnRH agonists markedly reduce the inflammatory reaction and angiogenesis, which means extra blood growth of endometriosis. And it reduces the cell destruction, the apoptosis, these free radicals, this destruction in the tissues of women who have endometriosis and adenomyosis. So at a cellular tissue level, what we see is that endometriosis causes inflammation. And that inflammation is a huge part of why women with endo have infertility. Okay. This is why when we're doing transfers, adding Lupron in, especially for a prolonged period of time, can be beneficial because what we're doing is we're dropping down the inflammation in addition to controlling the ovaries, et cetera, et cetera. We are changing the environment of the body and that's so powerful when we're trying to change an outcome. And if we go further back, what we know is that inflammation is so damaging in the body. And if we think about the inside of the uterus, inflammation can cause some progesterone resistance, potentially decreasing the ability of an embryo to implant or causing subfertility or changing the receptivity. And do we need to go down this ERA pathway or is the real answer shifting at treating the inflammation to begin with? Meaning we don't need more progesterone. We just need to get rid of the inflammation. Okay, you're obviously getting me on my soapbox, which is that our entire body is connected. And for too long, we're just band-aiding up other medicines and other tests instead of stepping back and looking at the big picture. I think there's a ton of unexplained infertility falling into this immune and inflammatory pathway. And so I'm so happy that your doctor is recommending two months of Lupron usage before your transfer, because it sounds like based on your surgery or based on knowing that you have endometriosis and doing your egg retrieval, your care plan is accounting from this from the get-go. And hopefully that's going to help you have the lowest inflammation possible and get the best outcomes. I always recommend you dive hard, especially if you have a known inflammatory condition into that autoimmune world, whole foods, fruits, veggies, get sleep, treat your body kind. Hi, Dr. Crawford. Two months of Lupron Depot enough suppression after endo-excision surgery before the next frozen embryo transfer. My fertility doctor wants to do three months and prescribe birth control while on Lupron to combat the bad brain fog and depression I was having. I've heard you say before that two months is enough and the side effects are not making me feel like myself. What are your thoughts on this? Wrapping up this episode with another great question about Lupron. So I think this is a really great point just to say a couple other things. Lupron's not benign. Your body wants to have estrogen. That's how your brain is made. And so one of the downstream impacts of having low estrogen is to feel kind of crappy. I mean, very crappy for some. Migraines, headaches, insomnia, fatigue, sleepiness. You can have hot flashes, vaginal dryness, lack of libido, mood changes. It can be very not fun. So we don't take it lightly. It takes time. That's why we don't just do it to everybody. Studies have looked at two months and some studies have looked at three months. So I don't want to act like there is 
consistency across literature that one is better than the other. It might really depend on the full picture, what your doctor has had success with. I will say I like three months if I'm doing Lupron alone, but two months if I'm doing Lupron with a aromatase inhibitor like letrozole, everybody's different. If you can't tolerate it, then definitely see if some birth control pill add-on can help. You can also try a Justin, which is norethindrone, helps with some hot flashes and sometimes some of the mood impact of Lupron and also does not stimulate anything. So it's a progesterone. So also in that anti-inflammatory world. So if your doctor is recommending three months, it might just be an honest discussion about, is there a reason why? Is that what they have better experience with? Is it about how bad your disease is? Have you failed other cycles with less Lupron or is this just their standard? Every doctor is entitled to feel like this is what they think is the best and not want to venture off of that. And I hold to that all the time. If you come to me with this is, this is the plan so-and-so doctor said you should do, I will say, why don't you go see so-and-so doctor? So I want you to get care and advocate for yourself to get your questions answered. But at the end of the day, I want you to trust whoever's taking care of you that they also have a reason for why they're choosing what they are and they can explain it to you. And if they can't, or if they don't, then maybe it's not the right place for you. And that's just big overall picture. So I would say talk to your doctor, find out a little bit more about their recommendation for three over two. If that's really what they recommend and think is best for you, try to see what you can do to alleviate some of the symptoms. And if you really can't be honest, ultimately there's nothing perfect for every patient. We are always trying to take science and literature and studies and apply it to the individual person and then make changes when we're not getting the outcome that we want to have the most personalized and modern care possible. I hope you guys like this episode, learning a little bit about embryo transfer. I would love to keep doing these. So again, thank you for five years of the As A Woman podcast as we enter into year number six. I would love it if you want to call and leave your own questions at 657-229-3672. Again, 657-229-3672. You can also follow along on Instagram at Natalie Crawford MD or check us out on YouTube. Thanks friends. Thank you all for listening to As A Woman. It would mean so much if you could rate, review, and follow the podcast to be notified of new episodes every Sunday. I hope you learned something new, and I hope you share it with someone in your life. Be sure to follow along on Instagram at Natalie Crawford MD, and check out the YouTube channel, Natalie Crawford MD. If you're interested in becoming a patient, you can also follow Fora Fertility. I'm so thrilled to have you here, part of the community that amplifies others as a woman.